Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel. Produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So back in the day, law firms either relied on their reputations or they got referrals from former clients. Um, They could also pay for billboards and phone book ads. But today, if you're a solo or small firm practitioner, you likely don't have a lot of time or a huge marketing budget to compete with larger firms to attract new clients. But a simple, well-crafted digital marketing strategy can be all that you need for maintaining a steady flow of client activity. So joining us today to discuss practical marketing tips is Rob Saravia, the marketing manager of the programs division here at the Florida Bar. Rob Saravia is the Florida Bar's new marketing manager, aiding growth in the programs department. He brings over four years of experience in the marketing field with a focus on the dynamic realm of retail marketing. Rob is a graduate of Florida State University with a double major in marketing and economics. Welcome to the show, Rob. Happy to be here. So Rob, what should attorneys consider when crafting their marketing strategy and how does it differ from a marketing plan? Right. So a marketing plan and a marketing strategy are kind of like climate versus weather. So a marketing strategy is going to be more long-term, what you have planned out for your business as a whole. It includes your vision and your mission and who you are, how you compare to other businesses around you. Whereas a marketing plan is more direct. You're looking at social media posts and you're creating a plan that's going to be, you know, these these plans are for the next quarter or the next year. And we're going to be doing email blasts. We're going to do paid campaigns at certain intervals. And we're measuring the return on investment or measuring key performance indicators. So in order to craft a proper marketing strategy, you need to really just see the picture as a whole, how you compare to your competitors and where you stand out, what are your advantages and disadvantages, and which areas you want to focus on and improve on. And I mean, would you say you don't want to skip the marketing strategy and just go straight to the hand in hand? Yes. Although I think a lot of people just do it kind of on the fly. Like I'm just going to start posting. Right. With with no real vision. (laughs) Right. So that's very important. 
Um, so how can attorneys optimize their law firm website to attract and engage potential clients effectively? So there are various factors that go into crafting an efficient website. You need to make sure that there's keywords that are relevant to your practice. So you stand out with search engine optimization or SEO. Uh, you want to make sure that it's easy to navigate and there's plenty of calls to actions like chat with us, reach out to us, sign up for a newsletter, whatever you want them to, whatever action you want them to perform, you want to make sure that you're drawing attention to that action. Okay. Yeah, very good. Because we see a lot of websites, especially in our department, because we have the lawyer referral service. So we will look at those websites. So that's, I think, good, good and, tip. And you need to know who you're targeting as well, you know, and yes. you want to make it appealing for them. Right. Because based on your practice area. So if I'm doing wills and estates, I probably want like a formal logo. You like you always see those Roman columns incorporated into their, you know, the name of their firm. But if I'm doing something that's like, intellectual property or entertainment law, obviously I'm going to want something that it speaks to that niche of clients. So you want to make it more tech savvy or, you know, more classical. You know, there's okay. different approaches to it. Let's talk a little bit about content marketing. This was really big back in the day. And I, I think um, all these attorneys had blogs and they had videos on topics. Where do you stand on content marketing? Like uh, frequently asked questions page or, you know, those kind of things. I think it's still very relevant to this day. So going back to search engine optimization, and that involves how you rank, for example, when somebody Googles law firms near me, it, whether you're popping up in the first page of Google or you're in the forbidden zone, the second page, <laughs> you never want to be in the second page. You want to make sure that whatever uh, keywords are being used to find lawyers nearby you are relevant and are on your website. So the FAQ is a great way to implement those keywords into your website. Uh, and especially you want to include keywords that are about your location. Uh, if you're located in Tampa, you want to discuss living in Tampa. And I think that videos as well are important just for the user experience. It's something that's very important because videos or engaging visual aspects of your website are going to make someone want to stay there longer and more prone to interacting with your website. I also think that can almost be an icebreaker because when um, someone who's maybe it's the first time they're looking for an attorney and they they're nervous about it. So I think it's a nice way for them to get a sense of the attorney to see if they're going to mesh, you know, to see if, if they speak knowledgeably about the topic. Um, I can see that. But you have mentioned SEOs a couple of times already. So let's let's dive into that, because not too long ago, it seemed like every marketing website would promise that you could come up number one in the Google search. And so everybody was doing SEO. Not everyone can be first. So are there, you, you talked about um, the, you know, the, the words, the keywords um, and optimizing your page names, but what else can you be doing? Like there, you have to set a budget. Let's talk a little bit about like the clicks when you, I don't think a lot of people understand how that works if, if you're paying for clicks to your website. Basically what you're paying for is ensuring that there's a certain amount of people clicking the link to your website. Now it's up to you to lead them to a page where you can create a conversion where if they go to that page, not only are they going to be provided with enough engaging information to want to reach out to you, but you also have to make it easy for them to know how to get to that portion where they reach out to you. Now, you can't have that call to action button hidden somewhere, you know, amongst a thousand words. So just keep it concise and make it clear for the user what you want them to do. But is it worth it to pay for 
someone who's an expert on SEO? I would say that it depends on the size of your firm. You know, if you are very limited on your budget, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessary. If you create a FAQ page and you keep up with a blog, with a blog, you're showing off your expert expertise and that you're updated on the ongoing events. And you're also highlighting your area of knowledge and you're providing those keywords that are relevant to SEO. Same as the FAQ page, you're talking about where you practice and what your area of expertise is in. And once again, makes it relevant for the SEO. So there's ways that you can make this very low budget, but but there's also areas where it gets very complicated, like creating tags for certain web pages. And that's where you may require the uh, expertise of someone that promises to make you number one in Google. Well, and the weird thing for me is if I'm doing a Google search, I immediately skip over everything that says sponsored. Yes, I do too. What is, what is all of that about? <laughs> I just assume that it's... I'm skeptical of yeah. that, Yes. But they paid a lot of money to, to pop up there. Yeah. It's it's the perception of how we view ads, honestly, in my opinion. I don't really know, but I, I do the same thing. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. And if you click on it, they're technically being charged for your click. But if you just go directly, then it's an organic search and it varies. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's exposure to the brand. So it's beneficial for them because either way, you have to acknowledge that that's there and you even though you might not say that you're sitting there reading it entirely, but it's something that your brain is processing and it's brand awareness at the end of the day. So I want to ask another question about the keywords because I'm I want more information on that. So when when we say keywords, is it putting many of those same type of words throughout your web page that you want to draw the people to? Or like how does that is it so many words that you have to put in there to populate your website? Like what is how does that work? So I would I would say like if we think about Instagram in its early days when people wanted a lot of people to be exposed to their content that add like 60 hashtags at the bottom. <laughs> now, that's not necessarily what you want to do because it diminishes the value of those keywords. Uh, so if you keep it concise to maybe about six to 10 of those keywords, then it, it, it changes, you know. Um, so at the end of the day, you just want to put words in there that might be searched for um, lawyers in Tampa and expertise in this area, but you don't need to include like every single possible iteration of how they might spell it or how, you know, so you can keep it concise and just relevant to your area. You don't need to come up with an extra vocabulary and look up the thesaurus for every synonym possible. But at the same time, there can be broad like divorce, Tallahassee, but then like custody, child support, those kind of things, right? Correct. So drill down to the, you know, I guess you're saying like get a little descriptive about what your practice is. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like that's a question that other people may have. That was just one that I had for myself. Okay. My next question here, how can firms make their websites stand out in such a crowded legal market? Because it's like everyone has a website now. I mean, everyone. And I think it's like a two second impression. So in order to make your website stand out, I would say you want to stick to your branding. You want to make it easy to recognize that it's you compared to the other thousand legal firms out there. I would say like ensuring that you're sticking to your brand and making that highlighted is very important. You also want to add a personal touch to it. If you've got certain areas of expertise compared to other people that they don't have or certain awards, you might want to highlight those on that page and make it easier for you to stand out by just you know putting your picture up there. Try to add a touch of personality to it. And when you say awards that, that we creep into 
the ethics territory. So if you're making a claim that you got a large award or settlement for a client, it better be true. Like So we're going to tell you to call the ethics hotline if you're wondering what you can put on there. 800-235-8619. We'll give you that number if you call us. I want to drill down. So when you get to a website, you just have a very brief it has people are either going to move on or they're going to want to see more. So what are those things that that um, is going to bring someone in? How can you engage them right away? Uh, so there's multiple approaches there. Once again, you want to make sure that your branding is the first thing that they recognize, that they're aware that this is your website page because of the colors, just like certain colors makes make us think of certain brands. Uh, you want to try to establish that for yourself, that strong branding. You want to make sure that there's a clear call to action, whether you want them to reach out uh, through email or even having one of those chat options available for them. Like That makes it easy for them to mention what their issues are and how you can help out. Uh, there's many ways that you can create that conversion. And I think that that's, um, you said something like you like when things start happening when you get to the page. I've also heard older people say they hate that. They just want to see, you know, like it could be too busy or like someone with ADHD, maybe it's overstimulating. So like, I don't want to dig for your contact information. If I can't find the phone number, I probably have already moved on. But the flip side is having too much on the page like we're talking about. But I do love, I think people, it makes them nervous, the chat bot, but we have one on our website and it's actually, it's kind of like a click and, and play. Like it's not, it's not complicated anymore. It's one of those widgets that you can just turn on and kind of pre-program it to ask, either take them to resources or, you know, ask them more questions. And if it's a live person, even better. So someone jumps on. I like that because I think that the first thing you think when you call a law firm is you're going to talk to a receptionist. They're probably going to book you an appointment many weeks out, you know, and people want to already have some information going on. I also like a web page where some of our uh, member benefit providers have this for the practice management software that will actually make your website for you so that someone could come to the page and book the appointment. They can do it themselves. Um, and I think that I think the younger generation. I mean, I'm older, but I still prefer that. I want to feel like I already accomplished a task. When I went to the website, I didn't have to wait on in person. But where's the fine line between junking it up <laughs> and, and having uh, the right balance? I mean, I think, do you just have to assess it visually? Maybe ask other people how that Ask other people, is, is this too much? Do you understand what, the, what I'm trying to get across with this website page? Is it clear for you? And always err on the side of caution. Keep it minimal. Take the, that approach, just try to keep it as minimal as possible and then add things, uh, whether if, if someone sees your page and they're not really understanding what the messaging is, add a little bit more, but definitely don't go over the top because that will decrease your conversion rate. But, you know, you can always see how certain numbers are performing, how, how long a person is staying on your website for or each page. And you can use that to properly assess whether that page is too much or it's not enough. And so explain conversion to the people that have no marketing background. Taking the impressions and dividing it by the click-through rate or, or the clicks. So if someone is going from being on the homepage, that's an impression. And then conversion is when they click where you want them to click, whether it's to reach out to you directly through email or phone number. When they click on that chat box, they are turning into a conversion. Um, so how frequently should attorneys refresh their marketing strategy, like including the website and the branding, um, considering trends change so quickly? Like I feel like every year there's something new and it's changing. And I do think that's important because you can go to a website and you're like, oh, wow, that is so outdated. Does that mean that everything 
at that office is outdated. They're not keeping up with what they should. So what do you recommend? Is like something realistic because I mean, it's very time consuming to put all this together. It really is. It it exhausts a lot of resources. And I think that it's something that really depends on the size of the firm and how much time you have. Now, you shouldn't go in there and change things up just to change them up. You know, you want to keep your branding and your imaging similar and recognizable, but you still want to change little aspects of it, like include pop-ups whenever you have a new post on your blog, or if there's any updates within, you know, if you've gotten some feedback from certain customers and you want to highlight that and you want to get those new visitors to get a pop-up or there's little things you can do to change it that it's not as time consuming, but it still gives it a refreshing aspect. Like someone is taking the time out of their day to update this website. Yeah. Here are my two pet peeves. Everyone who thought, well, we have to have a website. So they got one and you go there and like, I guess they bought the domain and never activated it. So it like gives you an error. Like, like I, I'm moving on <laughs> immediately. And then the other one is you can tell they haven't updated anything. So it's incorrect information. Those attorneys aren't at the firm anymore. You don't practice in those areas anymore. You're, you moved and you didn't bother. You forgot that you needed to update your physical address on your website. Um, so it's not just about, I get why you want to be consistent. So if you've, you've picked a brand, you want to stay with it, but please look at your, like if, if you're too busy, assign that task to a paralegal or a receptionist or a family member and say, please calendar this once a month, once a quarter, something, please go to the website and take a look. And and then you, it, you know, a lot of times you're going to have to, they may not notice the things that need to be updated. So as often as you can, because that's such a turnoff to a potential client. And I would say even updating pictures, maybe even every three years or so. I mean, I don't, Clothes change, all of that too. Well, I've been to a website for different professionals and then you meet them and that picture was taken 30 years ago. So I, I think that's a vanity thing and maybe that was the peak, but I think that it's a good thing to maybe put a more... Yeah, you don't want to catfish your client. <laughs> that's that's an excellent point. I'm glad. Yeah, that's that's the best way to phrase that. Okay. Okay. So you talked about call to actions. Um, do you think every page of the website should have a different call to action. And what are some of them? Like um, Jamie came up with some, like we talked about call us to schedule a consult. So they're, you're, you're literally giving them an instruction because I think a lot of times they don't know quite what they're supposed to do when they're going to engage an attorney. Or um, Jamie said, download our free guide. I love that one because you're putting something tangible in their hands. So you, like you said, that's a conversion rate because now they're reading this thing. What are some little things and should it be on every page? Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think that not every page should have a call to action because sometimes you just want to provide them with information. You don't necessarily want to get them acting on something immediately. So, and, and you also don't want to diminish the value of call to action. So if there's not one on every single page, then they're more prone. They're not seeing it everywhere. They're more likely to recognize that and not, you know, use their brain and shut off that part where they recognize that there's a call to action button because I've seen it so much. So you want to make it enough so it's impactful. And that's something where analytics kind of comes in. You want to see whether there's going to be, there if, if something is creating enough impact for you. Sometimes you'll notice that in certain pages, the call to action will underperform. So sometimes it's just good to scratch it and get rid of it. Okay. And that actually ties in perfectly with the next thing I want to ask you, which is website analytics. Because if, if you're not familiar with that, 
and we use that here too. You know, it can help gauge your your interactions on your website, which I do think is important for all the reasons you've mentioned. So is it worth putting effort into reviewing that? Because I think some people don't even realize that they can they can pull that. And so could you just explain that a little bit and how they can get that going if they don't have it? Yeah. I, and it, it really is. It's overwhelming in my opinion and kind of scary. I'm personally tech savvy, but I still Google Analytics and certain websites. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but yes, we're on Google Analytics for now. Yes. And there's there's still amazing people out there that provide you free resources on YouTube that you can just learn so much from. And you just go in there, you type in what your problem is, and there will be at least one person that has had that same exact issue and they found an answer. So there's so many resources available out there to learn about how to properly utilize these tools. But I think that Google Analytics 4 is a vital tool for success because you can't run an, a click campaign and then just say, okay, well, we paid $50 for Instagram to have these ads and we hope it worked. You have to have the analytics to back that investment. So you need to measure your return on that investment. Now, did we see that we got conversions from that. Did we have new visitors, new leads because of that investment, those $50? Did they turn into profitable uh, conversions? So it's, it's very important to make sure that you are utilizing analytics to make sure that your website is efficient. You can see which pages are being visited the least, which ones people spent the least amount of time on. Now, you might want to get rid of that page and put that information somewhere else on a page with high visits and you know, increase the interactions with those with that information. So I think that it's very important to utilize analytics for trends and ensuring that you're being efficient about the information you're putting out there and you're obtaining the conversion rate you want. We may have already lost some people, so I, I want to go circle back. This isn't something you buy. It's there whether you're aware of it or not. <laughs> um, so you just have to figure out how to log into your own um, page analytics. And it is really helpful. We constantly have to pull those for LegalField.com because well, I'll tell you our most popular page is free CLEs because that's, we're giving away something that normally costs a lot of money. But we, we do track that. And so um, we track our podcast, how many, you know, who, what were the popular podcast episodes, which also come with free CLE, by the way, if you're listening and you don't know that too. Um, but it, this is important. It's easier. It's, it's a lot easier than you think it's going to be. So it, it can be overwhelming. But if you just want to see your page views, um, we really encourage you to go do that. You don't have to hire someone or pay a lot of money to do that. It's right there already. So interesting because when we open it up and we look at our own, you know, our own department website. I, I enjoy well, you it. You can almost go down a rabbit hole because you're like, there, there's so much information there, but you can also keep it very manageable. Okay. Let's talk about social media. So there are people that are all over this and they have so much engagement and there's people that are like, I will never be on social media. They're kind of proud of it. Um, I think in this day and age, it's necessary. It can be a powerful tool, but if time is limited, what are your top two recommended platforms to focus on and what type of posts are the most effective? So I would say that probably for lawyers, Instagram and Facebook are going to be the best tools to use. You can create Facebook groups and create a personal connection with a lot more people. Uh, Instagram, you're also creating, it's just, you're putting a face to your business and you're showing, you can show off what you do for the community, what you do for your profession. And it's a way to build a rapport, to network. Uh, I think you can get a lot of use out of Instagram and just, it's, it's a great 
tool to get more eyes on what you're doing, your brand. And like I said, networking can be extremely beneficial to grow your business. So, And, and I've heard of some lawyers um, using TikTok. Are they dancing? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how that's working for them. And I don't know, LinkedIn, how do you feel about LinkedIn? I'm just curious because I feel like LinkedIn is shift. It used yeah, to. Yeah, no, it's like a professional Facebook. Yeah. yeah. So I think LinkedIn has its uses. Um, you got to understand that the audience is going to be extremely different from someone no one's going home and they're like, I want to relax. I'm going to scroll through LinkedIn right now. So you can get people, you can build a different kind of relationship with someone that's interacting with your content on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I think you should use them all hand in hand. And if you have a really trendy TikTok dance, then go for it. Use that tool. Uh, it's just, they're all free tools for you to grow your business. Uh, so utilize them if you can. You never know when you're going to go viral on TikTok, and that could be a lot of eyes and a lot of business for you. Uh, so if you want to take that challenge, go for it. But I think that it is vital to have an Instagram, a Facebook page, a Google business page, of course, and a LinkedIn uh, to provide. With LinkedIn, the messaging that you can get across can be a lot more professional and just kind of create a report for yourself and show what you're capable of in the legal world. Whereas Instagram, it's just more about how you interact with the community or just so people can see that uh, current picture of you. <laughs> but yeah. And I think a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, I'm older. They didn't even know they were getting direct messages. Don't ignore that. If you put out that content and then people are responding to it and you thought your job was done because you did your you got your whole firm to do a choreographed dance in front of your building. Awesome. I love that. But then they neglect the important part. Yeah. Answer those DMs and make sure there's also a link in your bio uh, so that people, when they're on your page, they can just tap one button and suddenly they're on your website. And now you can work on that conversion rate and get them to actually reach out and make sure that whenever you're putting out content, it's optimized for cell phones and it's not a blurry picture because at the same time, this is your brand that you're representing. You don't want to put out content out there that is going to make your brand look poorly. You want to make sure that it's nice and legible, visible. It's not blurry picture. And there's there's plenty of information on your website and your you know profile, your bio. And proof it. I can't stand typos. If you're an attorney that has written such a mess of a sentence, even though it's social media, that wouldn't draw me in because I'm worried you're going to make those same typos on my pleading or my, you know, so please proof those. And I think our younger generation, they're used to having some sort of social media. So even like Christine mentioned, if you're like, no, no, I'm not going to do social media, you probably should try to at least do one of them. I mean, I would say two if you can, but at least do a Facebook page or something, right? Yeah. And somebody in the firm, even if you have a you know, small to medium firm, somebody in your firm is going to be enthusiastic about taking this on. So it just find the right person. It doesn't have to. I love that it's free. It's engaging. Um, and it used to, you know, the back of the phone book when I was a firm administrator in Pensacola long, long ago, having the back of the phone book was $10,000 a month. And that was in that, you know, in today's dollars, I don't even know what that would calculate to, but like it, all kinds of that used to, you know, it was, it was prohibitively expensive to do widespread marketing. So there's so many options. And of course, I would be remiss. I'm just making a shameless plug because in our department, we have the lawyer referral service. Rob is going to be working on that with us. You can, for $125, you can sign up for a year 
We have eight clerks and we got over 67,000 phone calls from the public last year. So that is some very cost effective marketing. Um, so I, I would look into that too as well. Any new attorney that I speak to, I'm always telling them because it really is, it is truly a great way to build your practice. Um, so do you have suggestions for obtaining positive client reviews and testimonials to enhance a firm's online reputation? Because I do think that is like that is something I know I personally look for for any business. I want to see reviews and I take the time to read through that. And that's honestly one of the hardest questions you've asked me so far. I, I think obtaining reviews is one of the trickiest things because you, you're on very, very thin ice when you're dealing with those things. And obviously you can't reward them monetarily for the reviews. Otherwise, it's just not genuine. You want to obtain a genuine review from someone. So it's all about the timing, I would say, when you ask that question. And I think it's okay to do it after you know, you've helped someone achieve a successful case. And even following up afterwards, if they don't respond with, the, you know, send them a nice email or a thank you card. Um, but iterate that, you know, you'd ultimately want them, phrase it nicely, but iterate that you want a review from them and follow up with it a couple of weeks afterwards if you don't achieve the desired results. But definitely the people that you want to review your business, uh, you have to make sure that you reach out to them and you make it clear that that's what you want. But make sure that it's quarterly, cordially asked. And that's a good point because the other thing are Google reviews where anyone can review you. And that's a whole other topic, but I do want to bring it up because people, uh, attorneys have gotten negative reviews from people that were not their clients and you can't just like roast them on out there. And so um, I, when we post this episode, I want to put a link because there's some ethics opinions that guide um, our Florida Bar members on how to handle negative reviews you know, factually inaccurate reviews. I think that's an important thing. You don't want to step over the line. Um, let's talk about email marketing for lawyers. And again, um, everything we're saying is going to come with a caveat that there's an uh, advertising handbook that we're going to put a link to, to make sure you're still um, on the right side of our roles. But what are your thoughts on things like tools like MailChimp? It's gotten so easy to make an um, a email campaign. You can create something that's so engaging to I think it's extremely beneficial if you can afford to uh, use a system like MailChimp, go for it. Uh, there's definitely a lot of budget-friendly options. And I don't know if we provide a mail service, but I know that the Florida Bar, you know, 60 plus member benefits offers a lot of discounted uh, marketing tools. Uh, so I, I think that if you can afford it, definitely go for it. Uh, you want to build a relationship with your customers and building a personal relationship with them can increase your likelihood of obtaining that review. You want to make sure that whenever you are obtaining reviews, you're interacting with them, replying to those reviews. But through email marketing, you can ensure that you're staying in touch with those clients and you can increase your likelihood of obtaining a referral or, you know, representing your brand properly outwards. So. Let's talk about low-tech marketing methods because some of those are still effective. And I, you have marketing experience. What are some things that you did that were not digital? A, a lot of trade shows and events, I would say. It's always good to go out there and represent your brand personally. That's the best way to get the proper imaging, in my opinion. I would say that public speaking, any chance you have to network, there's any local chapters you can attend. 
uh, I would highly recommend doing that just because the more connections you make, the more prone you are to be recommended by word of mouth. And word of mouth is the most effective form of marketing. So you can do that. Maybe even try some affordable priced, affordably priced flyers or posters that you can put around in areas where you know your customer base is going. So if you can target them that way, I would highly recommend that. I think that there's a, a book um, that came out a while back called Bowling Alone, where because people aren't joining anything anymore. So I think people forget that those things are there. Like if you're like a young attorney, you may not realize the value of joining Rotary Club or, you know, the local bar association. So I'm glad that you brought that up because it takes away the fear factor if somebody knows you. And if somebody is recommending you to someone else and on a personal recommendation, I think goes so much farther than just, you know, some general marketing, but like getting out there, uh, there's paralegal associations, there's legal administrator um, associations. We go to one where there's a lunch once a month and, you know, they do bring in attorneys and talk on a topic. So I, I think that's a great point. I, I think um, the, the bar actually provides great resources for this. I mean, like you mentioned, we have the referral service, which is outstanding in the amount of business that you can obtain from that, the connections you can make from that, and also sections. If you join a section, you get you know, discounted CLEs and you can meet a lot of lawyers that are practicing within the same areas, but they might have different areas of focus. We do have our voluntary bar area that all, houses all of the information for that. So yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know where to start there, you can actually find it on the Florida Bar website. Those are excellent points. So can you share simple ways to show gratitude to clients to encourage them to refer more clients? So it kind of ties into what we were just talking about because word of mouth is so important. So just, you know, so you're not breaking the bank and like sending each person, you know, like a fruit basket at the end. You can't do that. But what are just, what do you think? Always just send them a personalized email, thanking them, to, mm -hmm. uh, saying that it was a pleasure working with them, discussing the great things you achieved together. I think, you know, there's so many affordable ways, even uh post if you can get their permission and share something on your website or your social media about how much of a pleasure was working with this uh, person. And I think there's many affordable approaches to that. I love I, I think people think it's cheesy, but I love mail. I'm older, but I think that people like getting a holiday card, even if it's from um, even if it is from a law firm that you used last year, I think that it puts them back to in like front of mind because you know, your neighbor said they needed someone and then you're like, you get a card and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that person was great. So I think that people overlook, I'm just going to call it the old fashioned <laughs> ways of, of, you know, interacting, but I think it's very human to say we're thinking about you. Um, so if I am a solo or a small firm, what's a reasonable amount for marketing that attorneys should expect to spend? Is there, can you, I mean, can it be a hundred percent free or should I expect that it's going to, they're going to incur some costs? You can definitely make it as affordable as possible for yourself, but it really depends on, on the situation that you're in. Now, if you want to grow a bit more aggressively, I would say invest more in your marketing. I don't want to throw like a one size fits all kind of figure, but I would say generally speaking about two to 10% of your gross profit is something that it's a good range to invest into your business. Because at the end of the day, it's, some, it's an investment that you're putting into your growth because with marketing, not only could you improve um, how your branding is perceived, but you can also focus on lead generation. It's a way to achieve your goals for the year or for the quarter. Utilizing that budget right there to achieve that goal, it's going to help you be able to be more successful. 
And so a lot of the tips that you've given us is something that it's almost like you can turn it on and it's working for you so you can get back to practicing law. It's not something that you're, you know, you don't have to be a, spend half your time marketing. So these, it's gotten a lot simpler. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I, I think you can really just find interns, marketing interns or uh, students from the nearby areas that will be able to do it on their free time. But some marketing is better than no marketing. So whether you're choosing to invest in it yourself or you can afford to hire someone a little bit more inexperienced, but they're still going to be making sure that you don't have extremely outdated information on your social media or your website and making sure that there are links on your social media profiles that will lead to conversion or just ensuring that the tools are provided for you to grow. It, it, it's worth the time. It's worth the investment for sure. Excellent. I forgot about all the internships that go on. at it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, you know, you might take an intern from an undergrad that's planning to go to law school and you're teaching them. But I love the idea of the intern coming in and teaching you something. Did you do an internship when you were undergrad? No, I didn't. <laughs> but you highly recommend friends it. that have done it. Yeah, it worked out for them. <laughs> okay, that's great. Well, are there any other tips or some guidance that you could give to our listeners if, they're, if they don't know where to get started? What's, what's the first thing they should do? Go to Legal Feel. <laughs> Reach out to us. We'll, we'll, we're here to help out at the end of the day. I think um, that's something that we need to highlight within the bar a lot more. We strive to help our members grow and we provide a lot of resources for them to achieve that at an affordable rate or for free as well. So I think that the amount of resources that we have between the bar itself and Legal Feel that we are here to help and we're always looking for more ways to help. So many things that you can get discounted or free. FedEx and like car rentals, hotels, like it's insane. All kinds of software. And the reason I'm, I'm saying software particularly because I just watched Clio has been one of our big practice management software programs for a long time. And I just watched a new demo. Um, and I didn't know that if you have Clio Grow, it literally like with a few clicks makes your website and they host it for you for no additional cost. I had no idea. That's That was mind blowing to me because back in the day, you had to pay a lot of money to get a website designed and hosted. It's gotten so much simpler. So yeah. And you can even get a discounted rate through the Florida bar for Clio. So but we do have member benefits, I, I know, that will help you with your website. So again, just throwing our member, all of our member benefits, take a look at that. Thank you so much, Rob Saravia, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure joining you guys. I hope that I'm invited in the future. So, Rob, thank you so much again for joining us. And if our listeners have questions, they can follow up um, by emailing legalfuel at floridabar.org. Again, that's legalfuel at floridabar.org. And Florida is spelled out. In the second segment of our podcast, we're focusing on the ethical requirements of lawyer advertising. And joining us is Jeff Hazen, Assistant Ethics Counsel at the Florida Bar. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I think we should start by talking about where the line is between marketing and prohibited solicitation. So earlier on, we were talking a lot of uh, marketing tips, but we just want to make sure everyone is aware of what they should do to make sure they're not Doing something that line. Yeah, doing something they shouldn't. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess it's probably easier to, to talk about, you know, what solicitation is because marketing is really, I guess, all types of advertisement could be considered marketing, whether it be print or TV, radio, all those are, you know, marketing, if you will. And our, our rules don't really mention marketing too much, but it's sort of better to say what prohibited solicitation is. So, and our rule on 
solicitation is 4-7.18. And that rule, it specifically mentions telephone calls and video conferencing like FaceTime specifically prohibits uh, lawyers from soliciting via those methods. And the, the SCA has also prohibited other types of cold calls like knocking on doors, uh, handing out flyers and pamphlets in a public space, using uh, other professionals to uh, help the lawyers solicit like realtors or bail bondsmen or you know, other professionals that might uh, pharmacies so like a pharmacy bag, uh, various things are prohibited. But the rule itself allows a very limited uh, solicitation, essentially by regular mail or by email and under the stringent conditions that are set forth in that rule. For instance, a couple of the requirements are that uh, you state where you got the recipient's information, that you have a statement of qualifications about the lawyer's qualifications to uh, do the work that's advertised for an advertisement mark on if it's if it's regular mail on the envelope and the the each page if it's email the first uh, word of the subject line has to be advertisement uh, and so the our rules allow very limited direct solicitation of clients and it's really what's prescribed there in 4-7.18 i want to dig into this just a little bit because i think that there's nuances that uh, some attorneys aren't aware of. I know that there's sometimes relationships between personal injury attorneys and like chiropractors. Can an attorney give a stack of cards that the chiropractor sets out at their office? Generally, no. Now, if you have if you have a public space where lawyers or other professions have a like a common area, like a table, and the, and somebody can pick that up if they want to, uh, then it's information upon request, and so that that is permissible. But if it's it's a professional like a chiropractor or record service or any other professional that's handing things out to people. That's prohibited. It definitely it has to be something that's initiated by that prospective client and it's information about requests that they're seeking out. Okay. So we're talking about like a board where it has business cards, right. let's say, like that type of thing Correct. is okay. Correct. Correct. So hanging around the emergency room with your cards, not a great idea. Not yeah, definitely <laughs> prohibited. I mean, that's something that that obviously that wouldn't comply with 4-7.18. All those stringent requirements could not be complied with in that context. What about at the courthouse? You've come out of a trial and there's people that assume that you're an attorney if they approach you. Yeah, I think that's okay. If they approach you, again, that's information upon request and a, and a lawyer could engage with someone that that came up to them in the in that context of the courthouse. Okay, that makes sense. I have heard of attorneys when they're trying to like start from zero with a, with a practice that they will actually look at the um, arrest records that get published, you know, online at like some of the sheriff's websites and those kind of things. And they'll do mass mailings to those. What are there's probably a fine line there. Yeah, I think that's you know, that is generally okay because I think that can comply with four seven point eighteen. You you go to, you look at the arrest records online and you craft a direct solicitation of that person a letter saying, "Hey, I got your information from the sheriff's arrest records. It looks like you've been arrested. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, these are my qualifications." 
call me. That that's permissible. Uh, now I will say there are there are some statutes that sort of prohibit some solicitation, like non-confidential police reports. A lawyer can't use that. I think there's a statute on that. Now this is a legal question. Also, accident reports, and there's a federal statute that prohibits for the first 45 days after an interstate or international air crash. Uh, but those those are legal things that lawyers, constraints that lawyers do have to consider. Okay, makes sense. We find that many of our members have no idea when they need to get bar approval for certain types of advertisements. Some of them don't even know that that's a thing. And I know that in your department, that's you know, part of what you handle. So can you briefly go over the advertising filing requirements, specifically what needs to be submitted for approval and and what's the process just generally? Yeah, I think the, you know, essentially every advertisement that a lawyer uh, disseminates to the public has to be filed with the bar unless it's exempt from the filing requirement. And there's a rule which is 4-7.20. That's the rule on exemptions from the filing requirement. And if it's not within those exemptions, it has to be filed uh, with the bar for review. If it's a print ad, like a, a billboard, magazine, newspaper, internet, banner ad, we have to have a, a reasonable facsimile of that advertisement submitted to us. If it's TV or radio, we have to have a CD, DVD, USB, some tangible device that we can listen to the advertisement. We also need a transcript of the audio, uh, as well as a copy of the other text on the that that may be used on the screen. We also need, if it's in a, a foreign language, we need an English translation as well. And there's a fee associated with that, correct? Correct. The fee is one hundred and fifty dollars, and that's via check made out to the Florida Bar, and that's per advertisement. So if you're sending in us sending us ten advertisements, which is okay, we have to have you know it's ten times one fifty, and that that goes here to the bar headquarters in Tallahassee. Um, the the address and it is is online at the website. Good to know. Can you explain a tombstone ad and why this particular ad is exempt from the standard review process? Certainly. Yeah. And so referring back to 4-7.20, that's the, the rule on exemptions. In part A, it essentially says that if the advertisement has only information that's set out in rule 4-7.16, doesn't have to be filed. 4-7.16 is the rule on presumptively valid content or informally referred to as a tombstone ad. Uh, if you look at 4-7.16a, it lists uh, sort of a wide array of information about a lawyer's services. And if the, the advertisement is confined to those things, it doesn't have to be filed. For example, uh, office address, phone number, foreign language ability, fee schedule, uh, military service, an unadorned photograph of the lawyer against a plain background. All those things are, are presumptively valid content or tombstone. And if the, the advertisement is limited to those things, it doesn't have to be filed. Um, I would add that, like for instance, a direct solicitation, like we were talking about earlier, that can never be a tombstone ad because it has specific requirements and the rules that aren't presumptively valid. So that that can never be a tombstone ad. 
And I've heard from coworkers of yours in your department that you guys are very fair about this because there are attorneys that are trying to be so careful that what they send in is basically a tombstone ad. And I've been told that you guys will actually send the check back and say you're fine. That's correct. We we're we're on the lookout for that. If we if I get something at my desk and I, it's it's obviously a tombstone ad, um, we will send them back uh, as part of our review. Got your ad. It's it's exempt from filing. Here's your money back. So we're doing this interview in its December. So it comes up. A lot of firms are going to mail out holiday cards just to kind of keep them at the front of former clients' minds. They might send out cookies and tins, those kind of things. Who can you mail those to? Do they have to have been your client it, because that's considered something of value? Well, I, I think you, you can send out holiday cards to clients and former clients. And if you if you look at the the rule on exemptions to the filing requirement, there's an exemption for communications to clients and former clients. So you don't have to file that for review of the bar. Uh, that's fine. Now, if it's going to somebody who's a prospective or potential client, there is no exemption for that. So if it doesn't comply with the direct solicitation rule, which most holiday cards wouldn't, uh, there's, there's the, that would have to be filed for the, with the bar for you. So that, that's not permissible. But clients and former clients, that's fine. Just to continue on with our you know, key elements that should be incorporated. Um, and you touched on this a little bit with emails, but what should, what are some key things that attorneys should put in their promotional emails or postcards or anything like that? Just off the top of your head. Does anything have to be on the outside of the envelope yeah. if it's a, those kind of things? Yeah. And I think maybe we touched on this before, but um, with the direct solicitation rule, it does have specific requirements. For instance, an advertisement mark that's clear and conspicuous on the envelope and on each page of the advertisement. It has to have a statement of qualifications of the lawyer for that particular area of law that's being advertised for. It has to have a statement of where that prospective client's information was obtained, like arrest records. Mm -hmm. uh, that that has to be uh, stated in the advertisement. So, but I, I would just suggest it's a pretty it's a pretty expansive rule. I would suggest that lawyers look at that rule uh, before they file. Those are just sort of three or four of the main requirements. But I'm I'm not sure that that's comprehensive. With an email, the subject line, the first word has to be advertisement. Theoretically, and the Board of Governors has permitted this, you can use uh, a text message to directly solicit. It has to comply with 4-7.18. Uh, first word has to be advertisement. Uh, it has to have an opt-out clause. It cannot be set up where the client has to pay uh, to receive or the prospective client has to pay for a seat. And the lawyer has to make sure they're complying with all FCC regulations. So it's a little cumbersome, but it is theoretically possible to do a text message direct solicitation. I think that opt out is important. This time of year, I have received texts from every business I've ever ordered anything from. So I'm <laughs> clearing that out. Okay. So in this day and age, just about every attorney has a website. What are the rules regarding websites? Do they have to be reviewed by the ethics department? And what about, so I want you to answer that two-part question. Can you have pictures of clients holding up big checks that they received? Can you say that you were the top lawyer in Florida 2022? Those kind of things, because it seems like there's a million awards that attorneys can receive. Sure. So the, the websites do not have to be reviewed by the bar. Again, going back to 4-7.20 the lawyer's website is exempt from the filing requirements. Initially, back you know, 20 years ago, at least, the bar did review uh, websites for some period of time, but obviously that became 
really difficult because websites are fluid. They're changing all the time. It's just, yeah. And I think the, the, what happened is that the bar looked at it as websites are information upon request. People are, people are going there looking for information rather than that information being uh, sent out TV, radio, billboard, what have you. So websites exempt from the filing requirement. It is still subject to the substantive requirements of the ad rules. And I would particularly point to 4-7.13. It's a rule that's got some pretty meaty requirements or prohibitions. Sort of what you were talking about, Christine, that the rule prohibits predictions or promises of results. It prohibits characterization of the quality of representation unless it's objectively verifiable. It prohibits past results uh, unless it's objectively verifiable. Uh, so that that's something that the lawyer should pay attention to. As far as clients and, and past results, I think that's permissible as long as the client is consenting to it and it's objectively verifiable. So if you have a client saying, hey, Jane Doe got me $5 million, that's permissible as long as the, the client's consenting to it and it's, it's accurate. There is a rule on testimonials. It's, it's part of 4-7.13. It's, it's part B9 of that rule and testimonials are permissible in websites and other advertisements as long as they comply with that rule. For instance, it cannot be drafted or written by the lawyer. It cannot be given for something of value. So the lawyer can't pay the client to give a testimonial. Uh, It has to be the actual experience of that client or former client. So testimonials permissible under the rules set out there in 4-7.13. If you have someone holding up a big check, does it have to be your actual client or can you use models to? It has to be the actual client. <laughs> I wonder. And, That's right, a good yeah, question. And the, and the, yeah, the standing committee on advertising has, has held that. You know, the reason for that is just in a nutshell is it has to be the, the a testimonial has to be the actual experience of the person giving the testimonial. If it's an actor, you can't comply with that part of the rule. So it, in essence, no, you can't have an actor do a testimonial for and you. And I love that you made that distinction that the website is the reason it's ex- exempt, because I've wondered this before, is because someone would have to choose to go to it. That makes so much sense. But I, I that's an important nuance. Thank you. Yes. And I was skimming through the handbook and I did read through where you're not able to have celebrities and, and actors or, you know, on your website and all of that sort of right. thing. Yeah. So generally speaking, and the rule on that is four dash seven point fifteen, you can't have a, a celebrity endorse your law firm. So that's yeah. Are there still restrictions? And I don't this is one of those things that could just be urban legend from back when I was running law firms. Um, there were firms that would say, we have a doctor on staff and they'd be in the group photo on the billboard or their paralegals would be up there. Like there was something about it should be the actual attorneys. Is, is there something, are there prohibitions about who can be on staff in the photographs of your advertising? Not really. I mean, there, as long as that person is an actual employee of the law firm and and you're not state or, stating or implying that they're a lawyer when they're not, that's, okay. that, that's a key distinction. But if they're just somebody who, a staff uh, at, at the, the law firm, they can be in a, a firm photo as long as you're not sort of stating or implying that they're All something that they're not. Right. Okay. Correct. Okay. Are you talking about like stock photos or things like that? No, I'm talking about when you'll see like they want their firm to look very big. So they have like the runner, the secretary, every paralegal in there. And you don't know, does this firm have 15 attorneys there or do they just have three? 
and that's something that can be a problem where law firms say they've got 10 people in a photo. It's really like a one or two lawyer firm. And they've got seven or eight people that are staff and in suits and you know, some you know, things. And if they're you know trying to imply that they've got eight lawyers in the firm when that isn't the case, that that's problematic. Um, so we want to move to social media because that is just such a huge thing. People are using that for everything. Yes. Yeah, so is there a need for social media to be reviewed by the Bar Ethics Department, particularly for platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube? And of course, now we have TikTok. And, and it could be that. an ad or a post. I mean, right. like if you're running a Facebook ad, that's obviously different than you commenting on something. So the social media sites are the the SCA has and there are guidelines at the uh, at the bar's website in the ethics section for this, but the SCA has determined that social media websites are significantly like websites in that they're they're information upon request, and if it's just appearing in the that lawyer or law firm's feed, that doesn't have to be filed for review. However. Uh, and this is, you see this a lot. If it's boosted or sponsored, so the lawyer is paying for that to appear in somebody else's feed who really may not want to see it, that has to be filed for view. So that, you know, that's like it's essentially an internet ad and that has to be filed for view. So if it's just appearing in the lawyer's feed, that is uh, exempt, boosted or sponsored has to be filed for review. Okay. And you already talked about that you can't be offering incentives for positive reviews from clients. So we talked about that. Um, a hot topic has become, how do you handle these negative online reviews? Because you don't, is it really the client who's saying that you did a good job or a bad job? Um, and so that's come up a lot. What What's the attorney, if, if you are the victim of false negative reviews, what can you do? Yeah. So the, there are a couple of recent opinions. Uh, there, the opinions are 20-1 and 21-1. 20-1 deals with a negative review by a client or former client. 21-1 deals with negative reviews by third parties. It, it, in essence, the, the ethics rule that is uh, relevant to that is 4-1.6. That's the confidentiality rule. And that, that rule describes confidential information as any information relating to representation. So it's very broad. I don't want to go too deep into it, but if you look at the comments of the rule, it makes clear that confidentiality is different from lawyer-client privilege. Lawyer-client privilege is really a legal question under the evidence code. But confidentiality is very broad. It's anything about the representation. So in order to divulge confidential information to a third party like online in response to a negative review, you have to have either client consent or an applicable exception to the rule. Most of the time, neither of those is going to apply, especially if the client's giving a negative review. They're not going to give you consent. There's no exception that's relevant to negative online reviews. So what the Professional Ethics Committee said is you're very limited in what you can say uh, because anything you say is probably going to be confidential. So what, what they said was that a lawyer can state this specific language. I am constrained by the rules regulating the Florida Bar from responding in detail but I will simply say that it is my belief that the comments present neither a fair or accurate picture of what occurred. And I believe the comment is false. That's And so I tell lawyers, use that exact language and you're okay. If you start getting beyond that, you've got risk that you're, you're revealing confidential information and that could be, you know, could subject the lawyer to discipline. 
Perfect. I think they like when there's a statement right. they can pop up. What if it's not a client and there's a person you've never heard yeah. of? Can you right. state so, that? Yeah. So that that's 21-1 and it's essentially the same thing. There are a couple of distinctions. The, the lawyer can ask the client for consent to reveal confidential information. I would put if it's not in the client's interest uh, to consent to that, then I would. That I don't think the lawyer should ask for it. And the the lawyer can state this person is neither a client or a former client, so they can make, the lawyer can make that clear. What is required in advertisements when an attorney has a virtual office that they occasionally use to meet with clients? Sure. So if, if and this is something that the handbook on advertising addresses. But you know, virtual office. Uh, I think that described. Um, as you know, a space that's owned or under the control of another is shared by multiple lawyers or other professionals, or as a conference room or other space rented by the hour. So that's that's kind of what a virtual office is, where somebody has a space where they can conduct business, like interviews, depositions, consultations. And when the lawyer is advertising a space like that, what they should use is available for consultation or available by appointment. So available by appointment in Jacksonville, available by consultation in Orlando. So that's how the lawyer needs to advertise that. Otherwise, it's it can be false or misleading if they're implying that they have a full-time bona fide office in Orlando when they just take appointments there. All right. I, I want to touch on this because we within the Practice Resource Center at the Florida Bar, we also have the lawyer referral service. And so we wind up with a lot of these phone calls. There are um, referral services that attorneys sign up for called qualifying providers, but they're not all qualified. Can you talk about what an attorney needs to do before they sign up with one of those? I think the lawyer has to make sure that that referral service directory, you know, any qualifying provider is registered with the bar uh, and is and is filing their annual reports because those, those people, in order for a lawyer to engage with them, must be registered with the bar filing in their annual reports. So that's that's the main thing the lawyer needs to needs to make sure of. Then the lawyer needs to do and the rules don't specifically state with this some due diligence to make sure that that qualifying provider is complying with the advertising rules. So I mean I if I was a lawyer that was participating uh, I would say I want to see your advertisements, you know, send, you know, send me a link with what, you know, what you're putting out there in the public because the lawyer, if the lawyer doesn't do some sort of due diligence, the lawyer can be responsible for that advertisement that from a qualifying provider that they participate with that doesn't comply with the rules. And for our last question here, uh, the, handbo- the handbook on lawyer advertising and solicitation was just updated in August of this year. Where can members locate it and who should they reach out to if they have any questions after reviewing the handbook? Sure. Yeah, it's it's available uh, at the bar's website, which is floridabar.org. And in the in the ethics section, if they look at the top of the homepage, sort of top right, there's a link for ethics rules and ethics. And if you go to the ethics section, that handbook is there in the advertising section. And it's a super, super good resource. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what I tell people when they're saying, hey, tell me about the advertising rules. Uh, I say, go to the handbook, look at that. And then if you have specific questions, you know, you can call us. But if, the, if someone looks at the handbook and they have specific questions about any of the content, the best thing to do is to contact us and the ethics department. The ethics hotline, the, the phone number is 8 
800-235-8619. We're available Monday through Friday, nine to five, um, and we can answer any questions you have about the handbook. I'm impressed that you know the number. We've had guests on before that were the head of your department. I'm not naming names. She's moved on and up. And since she said, I never call it, I don't know the number. We know your number by heart. I can, I can quote it to anyone because it is so helpful and you, you guys are so friendly to our members. So we really appreciate that. And we appreciate you coming on, Jeff. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bars podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bars Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.